This is a Media Lab podcast. Do you have something to tell me, Dave? I don't really want to talk to you. You can't talk to me, you won't talk to me, or you don't want to talk to me. Can't, won't, don't want to. Oh, well, this is going to make for a great podcast. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the, machine. the Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm the insider, Dave. And I'm the machine. A podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although we tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be talking about the movie, The Insider. Public and 30 million people here, what you gotta say, nothing, I mean nothing, will ever be the same again. Now, the work we did here is confidential, not for public scrutiny, any more than our one's family matters. We're very serious about protecting our interests. He's got something to say. He wants to say it. I want it on 60 Minutes. Maybe for the audience, it's just voyeurism, something to do on a Sunday night. And maybe it won't change a thing. And people like myself and my family are left hung out to dry, used up, alone. What does this guy have to say? I don't be paranoid, Jeff. That threatens these people. But isn't cigarettes are bad for you? Who is this? <gasps> they have no right to hide behind a corporate agreement. He can talk, we can air it. The worst kind of an So Dave, I think there's kind of two things broadly that I want to talk about. But first and foremost, this is a movie by celebrated director Michael Mann. So what is your relationship with Michael Mann? I didn't know I had one with him, except that Heat was one of my all-time favorite movies coming out of high school, I suppose. And Collateral Typical. was like, Collateral was like, that was uh, the jaw drop of Tom Cruise, the bad guy. Yeah, I was playing the bad guy for the like first time. Amazing movie. Uh, and then I found out they were the same human being. And that is the last I've heard of Michael Mann. He's actually standing behind you right now. Well, I think part of that is that Michael Mann, even when he was producing movies, it was like he was on that two to three year period of making films. Unlike there's some directors who can pump like one out a year or one out every couple of years. Now it's like he's averaging every five to six years he's bringing out a movie. So it, there's longer gaps in his filmography the older that he gets. Heat was probably the first one, though, that I, that I watched as a pretentious film nerd. Of course, everyone talked about Heat and like how you had to love Heat. And then, of course, then I fell in love with Heat. Uh, there's that one. Of course, I was a big fan of Collateral. Saw that one in theaters. Blew my mind. Uh, that is on the shorter end of things for Michael Mann's films, I will tell you that. <laughs> Collateral is only two hours long. And most of his other ones almost get to three hours. So that's kind of what he's known for. He did Ali as well. Wasn't a huge fan of that. Last of the Mohicans. Last of the Mohicans. The other one I've seen is Mindhunter, which is uh, well known because it was the first time that... Uh, Hannibal Lecter. 
Hannibal Lecter was actually shown on screen, played by Brian Cox. Yes, so he, he's been in the game for, for a long, long time. And I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd ever put him on my list of like, these. this is like one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. But he's definitely made a couple of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I think that's fair. When did you watch this movie the first time? Um, I'm trying to remember if I... I don't think I watched it in the theater, but I could be wrong. And the only thing I remember about this movie was that it was long and there's a scene where Russell Crowe is sitting by himself on a chair and the wall is melting around him. And that's right, 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 the right. only thing I remember about it, other than uh, it's about cigarettes and blowing the lid, blowing the lid off of it. They got to rip the lid off. Throw in, throw in the butt at the tobacco industry. And I, I do feel like I was kind of bored, but I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's my memory of watching it. Uh, this is going to be my third time watching this film, oh, if I oh. can remember correctly, because I watched it once in university on DVD. Uh, and the reason why I watched it the first time was because it was nominated for Best Picture. So I wanted to like see all the Best Picture nominees. Then a few years ago, I did kind of try and watch every Michael Mann movie just to see. Uh, that's why I watched Mindhunter. Yeah, that's why I watched Mindhunter. Loved it again. It's it's a weird film because I remember and I recall both times being like, oh, I like I really like this movie. And then promptly, like within a year, kind of forgetting the specifics of what is going on in the movie. Kind of like you, I know like in general, it is about taking down like big tobacco. And I remember a couple of scenes in it. But if you ask me like right now, before we've seen this movie, tell me the plot from start to finish. I don't know. I don't know if I could do it. I'm always willing to put a gun to your head. There's, there's a scene where Russell Crowe's in a chair. Yeah. And the wall melts around him. That's, that's all I got. That is definitely true. And um, I know Al Pacino likes to yell a lot in this movie. But that's kind of an Al Pacino thing. I can't really say that that's a... I didn't even... On this movie specifically. I didn't even know that Al Pacino was in this movie. It's oh, interesting. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. That, that part's blanked it, yeah. out of my mind from remembering the movie that I have not watched last night in preparation mm -hmm. for this interview. Of course. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, then let's do this. Let me go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about The Insider. Hey, everyone. Just Kyle breaking into the episode one more time to tell you about some of the great people that keep this show going. You know, it's about 10.30 p.m. when I'm recording this. And I can't help but think that I'm, you know, kind of like those intrepid reporters burning the midnight oil, so to speak, to... Uh, release into the world something that's going to change people's lives. It's going to change their opinions about what they hold so dear to their hearts. This podcast is basically a Pulitzer Prize winning endeavor. Just don't fact check that. Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine, we'd like to tell you about what's new with our friends at StoryHive. Since 2013, TeleStoryHive has funded and supported emerging filmmakers with mentorship and guidance from the National Screen Institute, bringing hundreds of films to life from creators across Western Canada. Uh, just as a little aside to that, I actually know a few people who have won TeleStoryHive. I've interviewed them, and this is a great, great organization that has allowed 
artists specific to Western Canada being able to make great art. Um, in my opinion, but I think in fact as well. StoryHive is committed to supporting underrepresented creatives and stories, which is why we want you to jump on this opportunity. This time, they're marrying sound and video in their inaugural podcast edition, dropping way back on November 4th. They're looking for original non-fiction podcast concept pitches from BC and Alberta residents. Successful pitches will receive $10,000 and customized mentorship to produce the project. Applications are open until December 2nd. Check the eligibility requirements and apply now on storyhive.com. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is also brought to you by The Shared Mic. The hectic pace of modern life makes it difficult to take the time to truly connect with other people. The Shared Mic, Conversations for the Ages, is a podcast by age-friendly Edmonton that's creating human connections one episode at a time. In this interview-style podcast, people from different generations and backgrounds meet to discuss topics that matter to them. It's been a successful social experiment because so far, everyone has been able to find something in common. Season 2 is out now and offers a fantastic selection of topics including cultivating friendships, building careers, exploring virtual theater, volunteerism, and more. The Shared Mic is available on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and is brought to you by the Edmonton Seniors Coordinating Council and the City of Edmonton. All right, Dave, that was a full two hour and 40 minutes, but in in non-spoilery terms... What's your initial reaction of The Insider? You know, I, I, I loved it. I suddenly had this thought of understanding the use of the term riveted. Uh, I felt <laughs> riveted to the chair. It was so But tense. not with like metal rivets. Like yeah. you were... I was attached yeah, the emotional to the riveted. Couldn't move my butt. We've all been there. I don't know. I just... Uh, for a movie that doesn't have any violent action sequences, this movie frightens the... Can frighten people to death. <laughs> It is so creepy and taut. Um, There's a lot of paranoia that goes on in it. And it's shot, it's shot well for that. There's a really lived-in feel to it. So I, uh, I, really, I really liked it. I didn't realize time was passing as I was passing the time. I'm basically there with you. I think that there is a small criticism I can level at essentially like the last 20 minutes of this movie. But by and large, like I was, I was watching, like I was in it and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm pulled through this entire story. And I'm like, oh, I've been watching this movie for an hour and 40 minutes and didn't realize it had been that long. I don't know what it is somewhere. Someone has probably made a video essay possibly on this movie specifically, but there is something about it that I find this eminently rewatchable. And I don't know why this doesn't rate on my radar more than it does normally. There's something about it that's like, yeah, I, can, I could watch this consistently. And yet I will forget about it probably again in a, in a few months. It's like insidious that way. It's like this little gem of a movie that I don't know how many people really hold up to like super high esteem. But I think it's a really well acted, plotted, and uh, doesn't treat the audience stupidly. And also is uh, not afraid to throw these like little barbs at a bunch of different industries and people. Yeah. So I want to, I can't wait to jump into that because boy, watching this movie in a post 9-11 world is something because it's talking about things that I would not have cared a lick about in 1999 uh, that proved to be very consequential going forward, not just in news media, but even like the beginning setup piece about him going and interviewing 
sheiks and stuff over in Afghanistan. So yeah, I think there's uh, a lot. Like we've touched on with all the better movies we watched this year, that growing sense, that premonition that the world mm-hmm. was about to break apart is definitely weaved through this thing. And uh, and I think yeah, the, the sort of irony of it being shot in in its way is that a uh, it's shaky cam done correctly, and b I think because of that, it's almost you, you bridge this documentary feel where. You feel like you're in the rooms, and so you don't leave thinking that it's... I, I don't remember it as a cinematic experience. I'm just like in the moment as he's trying to figure out what the fuck's going on in his life. That I feel like I'm just sitting there with him as opposed to this voyeur-esque thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a power that I was, I've really been thinking about that in the intervening time from watching it and you know walking over just here like to this. record is... The Michael Mann style, which is very like handheld, sometimes shaky, but it feels like he does use tripods occasionally. So it's not like always handheld, but definitely like fly on the wall type of filmmaking. And there's moments where like things are like overexposed and under focused. And like it's, and I don't know why I'm giving him slack necessarily. It just like feels real, I guess. Like it's, he's very intentionally making it that way so that I feel like. Oh, like literally somebody's picked up a camera and started shooting this scene uh, rather than it just being like, I'm going to take this camera and shake it a bunch <laughs> while people are having a conversation. Paul Greengrass. Uh, yes. Right, right. Our favorite person to throw under the bus. Um, <laughs> I'm willing to throw you under a bus at any moment. So I think and, and especially because this is a film about like a documentary being made for 60 minutes, I think it adds to that feeling that this is like important and that this is like a real story. So I think Michael Mann was like the perfect person to adapt to this story uh, because his style just lends itself to telling this story. I've been immersing myself more in the photography world than ever. And uh, particularly after we read about Stanley Kubrick and his roots in photography, this style of shooting lends itself to that sort of journalistic feel. So, you know, when you're taking snapshots, let's say in the opening, I don't know if this is spoiling, but in the opening scenes as he's going to meet people on the, I think it's the Gaza Strip. If you're in a situation like that as a documentary photographer, you don't get to sit there and uh, get your exposures perfect. Mm-hmm. You don't get to, you know, dial your manual focus. Uh, you have to kind of have a preset up and then get in the moment. And I think that that's how this entire oh, movie best, feels. Yeah. And I do want to rewatch heat and collateral to see if if it's all there even last of the mohicans and I, I mean i don't really want to sit through ali again but you know uh see if this is intentional or if, is, if, if it was kind of designed for this movie uh, exaggerated for this movie just for the sake but i was in it i was in it well let's tell some backstory here for the insider then it was released on november 5th 1999 also released that week was The Bone Collector, directed by Philip Noyce, written by Jeremy Iacone, uh, starring Denzel Washington, Angelina Jolie, and Queen Latifah. Do you ever, did you ever watch The Bone Collector? No, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. I remember it's the poster, but I've never seen it, so I don't, I don't know how good of a movie that is. It's interesting, we talk about uh, Girl Interrupted being sort of a breakout mm-hmm. role because Angelina Jolie won the Oscar, but if she's already in a movie with Zell... Um, as a co-lead, right. then she had already turned some heads by then. Maybe her, maybe her father had something to do with that. I don't know. Uh, who's her father? It's probably a nobody, you know? It's not like it's John some Voight nobody. or something. It's weird how the older she gets, and, and I don't mean this in such a cruel way, but I'm starting to finally see 
that they are genetically related. Because um, initially she was this, right? Ravishing yeah, woman. Yeah. And John Voight is not ravishing. When he's young though, uh, some of the pictures like from Midnight Cowboy and stuff, he's actually a lot better looking than he is now, the prune. But uh, also he's- So beauty tips from David Yun. That's uh, our new segment here on our podcast. Don't grow up being a, a right-wing asshole and maybe you won't wrinkle as fast. No, I-, I uh, I've never seen a bigger cock than you. The- Frequency which some of these actors churn out work, particularly through mm -hmm. the 90s, it's Al Pacino's nuts. Like in this period, oh, yeah. he's doing. I think there was. Two a year, I, think I looked at his IMDb. There's a year he did five or something like that in the 90s. Anyways, yeah, he was churning some stuff out. Yeah. Anyways, we'll get <laughs> uh, there. This movie is currently rated 7.8 on IMDb, 84 on Metacritic, and then over on Rotten Tomatoes, as per 137 critics, it's at 96 percent that is and for 59,195 users it's at 90 percent so this is one of the highest rated movies i would say that we have uh, uh reviewed here on the podcast uh it is available on dvd or blu-ray you can buy or rent it on itunes and you can also rent it on youtube but i just have to say what's up stars you've been failing us here the last few weeks what's this, up with not having these movies this is what happens when you don't sponsor us it's just yeah. you get nothing you get nothing in return Right? No give talking something. on this show. You got to give something, get something back. Uh, it's budget. Hold on to your hat here, by the way. Uh, mm. I feel like Al Pacino's asking price was a little bit uh, much. Uh, its budget was $90 million. Holy shit. It opened to $6 million. Domestically, it would make 29 Internationally, it would make 31 which brings it to $60 million. So it was a bomb. It, it made less. It, uh, yeah. Lost $30 million, probably more with when you add in marketing costs. Uh, however, that is $94 million with inflation. Its plot description from IMDb is, A research chemist comes under personal and professional attack when he decides to appear in a 60 Minutes expose on Big Tobacco. It stars Russell Crowe as Jeffrey Wigand, Al Pacino as Lowell Bergman, Christopher Plummer as Mike Wallace, and Diane Venora as Leanne Wigand. Uh, anything you want to say about any of those actors? Well, we kind of talked about Al Pacino. A couple quick notes. Apparently, for Godfather 3, speaking about his salary, he uh, almost got fired because he asked for $7 million. Francis Ford Coppola wanted to give him 3 and then negotiated mm -hmm. to 5 So he's not afraid to ask for money. Um, <laughs> Good, yeah. And Al Pacino apparently was homeless for a bit. So uh, when he was up and coming... Not, oh, I was going to say, not, not, after not after he was Godfather. in The Godfather. No, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the story, I guess, is he wanted to act when he was 16. His mom said no, so he left uh, to pursue it on his own, living in the mean streets of New York, and uh, apparently slept in theaters and on the street and begged for money mm -hmm. to pursue acting. He's a fascinating, he's a theater guy, which I think a lot of people don't yes. understand. He does a lot of yeah, he does a lot of theater, done a bunch of Shakespeare stuff too. Yeah, and he's um, one so, of the words for him. Mean, he's apparently very, I mean, you can see it in the movies, especially in his younger career. I mean, that dude, uh, he had some range. It wasn't just Yeah, I definitely hoo think, yeah, hoo-ha. Hoo yeah, but I think, I think definitely in his later years, he's uh, often portrayed as a, almost a caricature of himself, but yes. he's been putting in, he's put in some great work. He did this uh, HBO film on... Kevorkian. Oh yeah, like, uh, uh, don't call me Jack or something yeah. like that. Yeah, uh, and it's, it's you don't know like Jack. Is, you don't know Jack. You don't know Jack, and he does like a, a phenomenal acting job in that in that show. So like he still has it, uh, and I think he knows when to turn on his Al Pacino ness the when juice. asked. 
I, the juice. Uh, I like the Apparently joke. He's a very he's a very like shy person in real life, though, is what I've been told. I don't know if that's true. Well, the, I, I the only way I can comment on that is there's not a lot of gossip about him. So maybe that's true. And um, no hot goss about Pacino. And I uh, I think it's funny because I used to tease that after he did Scent of Woman, he looked like he was blind. Uh, he's never looked directly at a co-star ever since then, except maybe in this movie. But there's something around this era. I mean, he's already getting on in his years. I don't know how old he is in the 2000s, mm-hmm. but um, he's cast in a lot of roles where he yells a lot and stares mm-hmm. off into space. You forget when you go back to watching uh, his early work, how, how powerful he is. We will find out because as it turns out, Kyle, uh, you have not seen Godfather Part 2. Yeah, so you Correct. don't even deserve to be on this podcast, frankly, if you ask me. But, uh. um, I just wanted to mention briefly, too, about Russell Crowe. This was like the beginning of his like huge breakout. Uh, no, uh, Virtuosity was the beginning oh, of, of course, his... The, yeah. with, with him and Zell. But he was nominated for Best Actor three years in a row. Yeah. But it was this movie, Gladiator was the year after, and then A Beautiful Mind was the following year. So there was, yeah, three big movies that he was in back to back to back, which brought him to prominence. Um, I, I don't think this is like a salty take or anything like that. I can kind of take or leave Russell Crowe for the most part. I think you can put in brilliant performances. Uh, and the last few movies I've seen him in, he is kind of there. Yeah. And that, that's about it. He's, uh, he's a fascinating He's person. an interesting guy too, yeah. I think it's funny to find out he's a singer, even though people made fun of him for Les Mis. Singer, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's, I let's, mean, you can let's, say that. Let's back up the truck. He's he's produced. He had a he had an album that peaked at seventy two on the Canadian music charts. So you know he's he's yeah. out there. Well, where, where where did you peak at, Dave? Oh, I'm still peaking, and he's he's uh, it's probably very popular in Alberta. Polarizing, I think. Like I, I agree with you. Actually, I I don't know if there's a spoiler. I didn't actually like him that much in this movie, but uh, oh, but we can go into okay. that. Yeah, I should throw a telephone at you. I think he plays it actually perfect because I don't think you're supposed to necessarily. You're not supposed to believe like him. Like you're, it's like, is he actually telling the truth or is, <laughs> right. or is this all a figment of his imagination? And if you look at the real story, some of it might've been actually made up by him too. So who knows? Uh, we'll get to that. Maybe Christopher Plummer though. I'm a huge Christopher Plummer fan. Um, I think he should have been nominated for this role oh, this yeah. year. Total. Snap. How Michael Caine not only was nominated, but won this year is kind of a travesty. I love Michael Caine. But we, as said last week, in our opinion, because apparently everyone disagrees with us, Cider House Rules is a bunk movie. Why do people like going to the Cider House? It's awful. I mean, they didn't even yeah. have cider in the movie. It's bullshit. And, uh, <laughs> no one drank a cup of cider, damn it. And cup. that's all I wanted. Yeah. We talked about the mash. And then there's a knife maybe that was awful. Maybe that was part of the rules about being on the roof. Mm. You couldn't drink cider <laughs> on the roof. No course, big straws. But. Yeah, Christopher Flummer snubbed. And as we discussed pre-recording, some anti-Canadian sentiment, I think, that he uh, was not nominated until he was in his 80s. Uh, This guy is an actor. Very much so. Everything from being sweet to being a psychotic killer to playing Mike Wallace. He can do a a lot of different things. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's played a Nazi at some point. uh, He did, actually, which is interesting. He's got range, man. (laughs) Yeah. He'll always be a Von Trapp, unfortunately. And the the <laughs> crazy thing to me is so like his portrayal of Mike Wallace, like I can't say that he necessarily like looks exactly like Mike Wallace. He does a, a close approximation, but the voice is like dead on. I don't know if you know Mike Wallace at all, but like he gets his voice 
literally 100%. And it's so weird <laughs> seeing him act that out. It's amazing. I just watched a short clip of, uh, I didn't watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, but apparently mm-hmm. John Hamm uh, shadows uh, Larry David to become Larry yeah. David. And uh, there's a clip where it's pretty funny, but let's move on. I just saw that in the washroom oh. this morning. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how does that have to do with anything that I just said? But okay. Uh, this is written by Michael Mann and Eric Roth based on the article, The Man Who Knew Too Much by Marie Brenner, which appeared in Vanity Fair. We talked a little bit about Michael Mann here already, but Eric started his writing career in the 70s. Uh, His more famous screenplays would have been Forrest Gump, The Horse Whisperer, this movie, Munich, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and then the most recent A Star is Born film. He writes the upcoming Dune. I was going to say, he's going to write the upcoming Dune and is also writing the new Martin Scorsese picture, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. So he's he's got credibility. This guy don't fuck around. He's been around for a while. Yeah. The only last thing I'll say about Michael Mann uh, is that he certainly has a style. He started in TV, was a producer and writer for the original Miami Vice TV show. Uh, Came to prominence with the 1981 film Thief. And then we've kind of already mentioned, but Last of the Mohicans, Heat, Ali, Collateral, Miami Vice, Public Enemies, and then Black Hat. And then coming up next year, apparently, is the biopic Enzo Ferrari. Yeah. The interesting thing is uh, he produced Ford versus Ferrari. He just can't leave shit alone. So uh, Apparently, there's something about this story that he just loves a whole Well, you want to hear a a really weird uh, rumor? Apparently, he's working on a prequel to Heat. No way. Yeah. It's called Broil. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The other thing I was going to mention, too, is that if you follow film Twitter, like I do. Which nobody should is that there has been a reckoning of the Miami Vice film, which was kind of trashed by critics at the time. I saw it in theaters and remember not really liking it. But now I have seen, and I'm not even joking, like at least a dozen pieces about Miami Vice is actually good. So I don't know. I might try and rewatch it here at some point and see what these other people are seeing. Just uh, not to veer off on that movie, but my problem with that movie was uh, Colin Farrell still struggling trying to pretend to be American. If he, (laughs) honestly, when he's just letting loose and being Irish or whatever, you know, he's an incredible actor. He can be funny, he can be dramatic, but uh, there's something about him when he goes into Americana, he gets so wooden and I couldn't stand watching him in it. I think stylistically, I enjoyed it. Uh, Jamie Foxx was running hot at that time, so Mm -hmm. he could be anything. And I didn't really like Gong Li's character. I didn't understand putting in i think it's like a chinese national character in a cuban drug running right. you know just to bring in sort of like the top you name. you remember more about this movie than i do to be yeah i remember the movie pretty well i think i really wanted to like it i really wanted it to be a heat and it turned into not it turned into a kind of a simmer yeah <laughs> maybe it's just a simmer all right let's get into i guess spoilers as much as possible i don't know where do you want to start where do you want to start with this movie what was like the best scene for you I liked a lot of them. I mean, if we were not sitting here watching it together, I would reference texting you while watching it on my own. You know, there were moments where I felt like I was on my psychiatrist's couch. I mean, there's some deep layers. They're talking about uh, deciding how to act, how to make right decisions. Uh, I think the whole sort of moral compass underpinning of this story and just what happened is a fascinating theme. It's recurring, of course, in all, almost all of literature, but I think it was played really well here. We could talk about big corporations and 
big money and capitalism. We can talk capitalism. I love talking. Oh, about like this is like all about capitalism. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess to start things off here, then I mean, there's that uh, cliche that often gets said, which is like the truth is stranger than fiction, right? And again, based on the true story, definitely things that were flexed a little bit here to make this narrative work. But the whole setup to this movie, this taking down of big tobacco, forcing them to basically admit, hey, yeah, we've actually been lying to the public for X amount of years, kind of happened by complete accident in two different ways. One, they fire the guy who's willing to turn on them. And the only reason he does is because either he thinks people are coming after him or they really did send people after him. But I mean, what they did actually do for sure, was try and sue him, try and prevent him from talking in court, all this type of stuff. All these roadblocks they put up actually made him want to talk more just because that was his personality. Had they just kept him employed, chances are none of this would have seen the light of day until like years later, potentially. But the other one is just the fact of a news producer being like, there's something here and I don't know what it is. And you can tell that the first meeting between him and Russell Crowe, Al Pacino and Russell Crowe, like Pacino doesn't know what story he has at all. He doesn't know what he has to say. He just wants him to like look at some documents. And as soon as he lets go, it's like, well, I can't tell you everything. That unleashes like, well, now I have to like drill down, drill down, drill down to find out what this story actually is. So those two kind of like happy accidents are what produce this story in the first place, which I find interesting. The uh, corporation forgot the first rule of dirty dancing, which is that you don't put baby in the corner. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm very familiar with that case, dirty be dancing. So. <laughs> you know, this the movie's set up for you to see how much he has to get stripped away for him to continue to stay on the moral compass to the point where I think the scene that I remembered of him uh, having that hallucination of days gone by and his kids right. disappearing... Uh, so clearly the implication is going to kill himself. We can all dream, can't we? You know, even at that point, that's why it's so riveting, uh, especially for someone now at my age with kids. And, you know, like, I think I get, not get it more, but I identify with different parts of um, his sure. experience. So this is why it was a psychoanalysis. You know, that first meeting, where, I don't know, third meeting, anyways, when they're, where they're in the car and Al Pacino's like, you got to make a decision. On the one hand, you help everybody, but you might lose your family. On the other hand, you shut up, keep your family, but nobody, you know, but he, I like the part where he's like, there's no right answer. It's not like if you take the money and save your family, that's not a bad thing either. He's just trying to lay out those options. Yeah. Right. And just get the moral compass pointed in the way that Russell Crowe will be able to live with himself. And that's a hard, and this movie shows, I mean, it's such a struggle to get even through the depositions, through the thing, through the smear campaign. So you, I, I was just I was in it so visceral. Well, not to mention, I mean, like, I think what so many other Hollywood films do, and then you find out it's kind of a lie when you get out into, quote unquote, the real world, which is like, all you have to do is tell the truth, right, except the sometimes telling the truth sends you to jail because yeah. by telling the truth, you like violate the, the document that you signed, even though that they're doing bad things. So it's like, what do you do in this situation where you want to, but physically or mentally can't? Or yeah. don't want to leave your family in the lurch. How do you redeem a soul you already sold out, right? Like he... Right, like I've already I've already taken the money. Like the I've money, already sold out. Signed it. Even when he talks about why are you in the tobacco industry? Because he worked for all the, the good, the yeah. so-called good pharmaceutical companies. And he's like, I did it for the money. And he's broken, but I think that's a great concept. Uh, and again, prescient. Um, 
in the sense that we now live in a much uh, more surface level holiday. So the second point you brought up, uh, fun to bag on too, is the idea of journalism in an era in paper where you'd have to have back, sto- back sources and you have to have contacts in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and they have to corroborate with each other, even though they're all fighting for the same scoops. That storyline has disappeared a lot in modern movies because we don't actually do it that much anymore. Now it's all about these uh, kind of trending sound bites with no responsibility of whether the news source is accurate anymore. So, well, I, but what is incredibly damaging? I, I'm, I'm going to sound like a, like the oldest man in the world, but like with social okay. media out there, I'm just I, what what has been discovered and what has been exploited is the fact that if I throw up an accusation or a claim. That travels at the speed of light around the internet. The retraction, on the other hand, goes at the speed of sound or might not even be seen at all. So I can just throw out wild claims and I can just go back and like, oh, well, I was wrong. Or not even maybe even do that. Maybe buried on your website. Like, hey, I actually misspoke. But that isn't what's reported. It's the I'm just going to throw this up and talk about it. Or the difficult thing, which is commentary being put at the same level as actual reporting. Never read and the those comments. Are two, yeah. Those are two very different things, right? You have, I'm just going to use Fox News as the example. So <laughs> tell me my bias there. But if you have Sean Hannity, right, on the same level as a Chris Wallace, son of Mike Wallace, those are not the same thing. I enjoy Fox and all friends. I think too, it's fascinating that uh, Russell Crowe's character is on this side of the conversation in 1999. He has that line, right? It's like, well, nobody actually listens to it. It doesn't affect change. Everybody just wants a soundbite. This is all a waste of time in that mm-hmm. meeting at the restaurant, maybe, or the hotel, like near the beginning. And it's Al Pacino's character who's like, no, there's still value in this, even though he becomes jaded by the end. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Like, how, To open up that can of worms, can it be both? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. For me, I, I think that Russell Crowe is right in the abstract, which is, of course, a producer of 60 Minutes is going to want to have good copy and good photo, uh, good video to put on to promote his program, to get more advertisers so that they can continue doing the show. At the same time, it doesn't mean that it can't do good journalism at the same time. I think both of those things can support each other. Where you lose people is actually what happens in this case, which is corporate gets involved and it's like, we're actually going to cut his story out. And even though he put his family on the line, his his career on the line, that's all right, because we are going to prioritize our standing more than this individual. A couple of years ago, when I still lived in Toronto, uh, I had different phases in my corporate car. <laughs> uh, so at one point, I was listening to CBC radio. And another point I was listening to in Toronto, it's AM640, which is the... Uh, conservative uh, talk show radio. But on one of the programs, I'm going to presume it's CBC, the interview came up asking about the schism in North American culture about profit and not-for-profit sectors. And this guy was basically like, if we just allowed people to operate uh, socially good businesses, but actually make a profit at the same time, like why can't I make money trying to help people Whereas the narrative is apparently that I have to suffer and starve to death because that means it's morally correct. And that's a, that's a theme here, which I think is fascinating. One that's become so, so much more extreme in the world we live in now, which is uh, that somehow we equate doing the right thing as not only being selfless, but you have to be a martyr. Like if you're not bleeding, trying to help somebody, it's not authentic. And it's a good point. I mean, I struggle with this all the time. I'm on the other end uh, just by disease that I... <laughs> 
I think I have to be a martyr for everything. And the moment I start yeah. making money, I, I'm uh, telling myself I'm a sellout. So you're right. I mean, there should be not only a medium, uh, a middle ground, but they should actually be able to coexist. Whether they can or not, and now we get into the free market capitalist thing because of greed, right? And so there's a level at which, you know, presumably I can make money and uh, have work that will help people. But the moment I want a little bit more money, then, uh, then you have to find ways to cut pieces out. Sometimes I think about how does Amazon work with these prices? I mean, it has to be on the back of somebody else. You can't manufacture ship and do all this stuff. So... That scale uh, confuses me. Um, so I want to say ideally that I agree that there is a middle line, but in effect, I don't think there is. Uh, Big Tobacco is a great example. I mean, they still operate even after this thing happened. Exactly. It's still making billions of dollars each year. Yeah. So uh, I guess less than what it was in the 90s for sure, but still it's making a lot of money each year. I think why it's so interesting to watch this movie in 2020 is just how poorly the news industry is looked at in total i don't even think it matters like what side of the aisle you're on people are going to be upset by a whole host of different things i think i mean looking at the u.s just because this is a film set in the united states you have four years ago in 2016 just a whole host of criticism going on like why are networks cnn fox and even msnbc literally just throwing to Donald Trump rallies, showing it with no commentary over top and just showing it to them. Uh, like that in itself is not news. That is kind of giving a, a platform for someone to talk at. Yet the flip side is actually coming out now. It's like, it's like, well, why is it that there is so much criticism going now that way and very, very, very little being shown to uh, Joe Biden, the running mate? This is all going to mean nothing because this has been going to come out after the election this episode. So who knows what what uh, world we're going to live in at this point. But I but I kind of agree with both of those. Like my idealism is is, is really in its head here. It's not a good look. Is that the news and news organizations, uh, whether paper, online or television, is there to speak truth to power, meaning asking those tough questions like why are you doing this how is this benefiting blah 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 to both sides <laughs> i feel like they, we've just gotten entrenched so much into left versus right that we've kind of lost our way this is kind of going past the point in this movie probably a little bit but it's something yeah. i continually think about which is like i don't know it didn't have to be this way and it seems <laughs> like that's how we got here well i mean that's idealistic to not just yeah. realize that this is where <laughs> we're always gonna end up you know i yeah yeah I was just talking to Helen this morning about, I think Emerson asked something about science or books. And um, and you said, we don't believe in science in this household and oh, kicked him back into his bedroom. Well, of course. I mean, that's parenting, <laughs> number one. Uh, and number two, we were talking about how this used to be such a bourgeois thing. Like reading books was a one yeah. percenter activity. Oh, yeah. Uh, for better or for worse. And I say for better or for worse because I think there's a presumption right now that each individual has the agency and capability of reading news and making a sane, rational decision for themselves, which is not the case. And I think that the evolution of news, so starting from the news that I knew, which is kind of this insider-esque era, where you may still have to pick up a newspaper. Maybe your parents have, in my case, the Toronto Star, the Toronto Sun, Globe and Mail, and then eventually the right-wing uh, National Post <laughs> come out. Mm -hmm. And you can actually read, presumably, if you want, four different sides of a coin. 
And if you were so inclined, you could get everything from, like, let's say it's the Toronto Maple Leafs, you'll get somebody on one newspaper who will always say that they're shit, someone who's always going to blame the management, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can kind of formulate your own opinion. I don't think that a normal person or an average person reads four newspapers. We just want to be passive. I don't know if that's a statement about- Tell me what to think or tell me what I have to yeah, I mean, know to- <laughs> Tell me what I already think so that I can agree with you. That's yeah. the thing. I don't even know if that tell me is even there. I don't even know if there's a verb. I, I, I feel like, and this is being way too judgmental, but I almost feel like you just sit, something washes over you, you get an innate emotional reaction, you react emotionally to it, and then all of a sudden life moves on. Also known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, and it's polarizing everything because the media has realized if I, if I don't have to corroborate these stories, then why spend the energy there? Why not bring in someone more attractive who yells louder, who uh, you know can incense and, and stoke the flame? And then you get into this environment, just going back to the movie, where the power of slander... I mean, if there wasn't still that connection between the journalists and they couldn't push back on the slander, we'd be in the era we're in now, which is like you said, hate speech, mm-hmm. smear campaigns. Even when they publish a react, retraction, nobody gives a shit at that point. We've all moved on. We're, we're, we're following a different right. hashtag now. And that's it's quite frightening. All this is leading to the fact that, and I, I kind of already know this, the answer to this question, having talked beforehand, how familiar are you with 60 Minutes, the program? And I mean, I know it existed. I know it was a 60 minute show. Yeah, yeah, there was a stopwatch. Um, but I, I never watched it in its entirety. I think... There are always, you know, little clips with the background and, and somebody sitting on a stool, but it wasn't a, wasn't a show I watched. So I watched this show, 60 Minutes came on Sunday nights, and it was right before The Simpsons came on, on uh, the three channels I had growing up. So it was literally like, watch 60 Minutes, watch The Simpsons right afterwards. It was like the, the ritual that happened on Sunday. Um, and I loved Mike Wallace because you kind of see a little bit of his personality on display here, right? By like... Interview starts like, are you a terrorist? Like, just like, boom. <laughs> like, I'm just going to ask you this directly and like get you to talking. It also shows, by the way, if anyone's out there looking for interesting interview techniques, this is actually the 60 minutes method. There's a whole thing about it with making people say a soundbite for you. Basically, it's like, so you stole the car. I stole the car. Like, they, they want, they, 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 I'm staying a statement so you repeat it back to me so they can take that and boom, put it into their <laughs> video package. And it's weird how well that works if you actually start doing that in just like a conversation with somebody. 60 Minutes is extremely popular and it's still extremely popular. Oh, this show I still want, exists? Still exists. It is in its 52nd season. Oh, wow. As we are speaking here right now. You're going to hear the little clicky click of my mouse here in just a second. Um, as I go to people still watch cable television. Uh, well, this is not cable. Actually, this is on network television. 60 minutes is so it's over the air, but if we go back to 1999, the ratings probably won't mean much to you or maybe most people if you were never in that type of thing, but it was the seventh most watched program on television in 1999. Not by me, apparently. No, you you know what I did Sunday nights? I watched Disney. On CBC. Oh, yeah. The Magical World of yeah, Disney or the Wonderful World of Disney, whatever it was called. Um, it has slipped a little bit, but the the farthest back apparently that uh, someone has done is the two, uh, 2016 to 2017 season. And it was the 12th most watched show on really? television. Wow. So people are still watching 60 Minutes. There was a time actually in the 80s where it was in the top five for like 10 straight years. 
Like mm-hmm. people watched 60 minutes. People still watch 60 minutes. So it's interesting that it is still like this powerful forum, this news magazine where people are trying to you know, again do that truth to power. Presumably. I think Anderson Cooper's on it now. I have not watched 60 minutes in 15 years, probably. I'm just saying it is still extremely popular. A sentence that will probably never be used to describe this podcast. Going through some of the stuff that they wrote down, I actually wrote down, oh, it's a Touchstone movie. I haven't seen that graphic for a long time. So it was nice to see Touchstone back. I feel like Touchstone reminds me of Tom Cruise. I don't know why. I just feel like Tom Cruise has made a lot of Touchstone movies. Uh, They were talking about Hezbollah in the year 1999, which would become incredibly important a few years later. Also, like a quick note on the origin story of all the terrorists in Iron Man. It was the exact same character actors that are in the opening sequence of Iron Man, uh, including the uh, doctor, who in this case was the interpreter. Right. You know, I mean, good for them for getting work, but it is interesting from an American production perspective to uh, have a typecast of oh, what yeah. a terrorist looks like. No matter what you think about this movie, I think we can be aligned somewhat about how awful I believe the wife's reaction oh, is to sake. have him losing his job. It's like, but what about my way of life? I'm like, uh, your husband just lost his job. Right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm projecting too much. It just seemed a little awful. No, it bugged a me a lot. You know, I made peace with it in the sense, number one, I kept thinking, maybe this is based on a person, individual's actual reaction. Yeah. And number two, you know, in a patriarchal world, the people who are involved in this stuff will be patriarchs. So a story that shows that this man is about to lose everything important in his life, you know, may play into that narrative. But it is hard to watch when she yeah. doesn't even like she's a great actress. She does uh, like even in Heat, she does she does stressed out so well and is really engaging because she's a theater actress. To watch her work, but the script is so thin for her. Yeah, there's not much for her to do. Oh, like you can kind of see where it leads to that like super uncomfortable hand washing scene. Yeah, it's like what oh, there is fuck? trouble in this marriage. Well, they, I think that's supposed to correlate to that part where the girl's having the asthma attack, and she actually like caringly places her hand on top of Russell Crowe's hand because they're in this fam- familial moment. Mm-hmm. But uh, man, the wheels fall off that bus uh, rapidly. She completely mm-hmm. loses uh, her shit. Or, or are they? I mean, bringing up the reality to it, the the wife in real life does believe that he placed the bullet in the uh, mailbox by himself, and it may have made up some other stories. Like the story you told about the tobacco company is one hundred percent real, <laughs> according to documents. But some of the other stuff around their relationship seems to be contentious mm, depending on your point of view i guess <laughs> might have been uh, changed a little bit it's like it reminds me of the hurricane and how people or and boys don't cry yeah and something else we watched how people will disavow we'll do some mission impossible stuff will disavow the way uh, they're portrayed in a movie mm-hmm. you know they are we forget no i we don't but many people forget this is not a documentary you're right yeah, yeah it has to <laughs> has to have still that three-act structure and you feel like you're being portrayed you hollywood chill weirdly enough just watch this horror movie from the 50s called the snow monster it's like one of the first films about like abominable snowman it's an awful movie it's really bad <laughs> but the um the thing i that i was thinking about it afterwards is that there's always those people i'm sorry but they find so inseparable it's like why is it that they never show people like eating or going to the bathroom in films <laughs> and like this is a movie to show to people because if you show like them 
walking up a mountain for 15 minutes and doing nothing it's fucking boring <laughs> like we, do, we don't need all that extraneous stuff uh so like real life things like exactly how it happens like let's just like make this so it's somewhat cinematic so people want to watch it i'm just doing some self-reflection because i have made that comment on something before but i i think it might actually be more a reflection of a movie not being able to hold your interest mm-hmm. like you know you watch I don't know what's the set like Star Wars. You're never thinking about where do they shit in space and where does the where does the sewage go because it, you know the the movie's quite enthralling. Why, why did you never see Chewie like licking his yeah, hand? Like, yeah, how does Chewie take a bath? How did they, how, himself? Yeah. How does Luke Skywalker understand? It, it was a weird cutscene though when when uh, Han walked in and like Chewie's leg was like way above his head and just <laughs> licking his crotch. It was just it's like use the toilet paper, Chewie. A weird scene. I think the reality is interesting insofar as. Like, what is it trying to communicate with that? We've mentioned already about how the filmmaking makes it feel like it's a little bit more real. They're trying to tell this real story, <laughs> heavy quotations around real. I-, I think what they're brushing up against is these two kind of competing themes, which is, you know, commerce and truth telling and how that relationship works when they get mixed up together, but making choices and sticking with them. I, I- There's that scene where, you know, Russell Crowe and Al Pacino are getting mad at each other. And Russell Crowe goes like, you fucked me. And Al Pacino's like, you fucked you. Like, he, like, the point is, like, uh, Al Pacino is making that point. Like, you made a choice. Yeah. Like, you cannot get mad because you made the choice. I feel like they had that conversation, like, four times in the movie, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a recurring theme, for sure. I've been telling uh, Emerson this, like, because he's getting older and he's learning to lie and try to do things to gain advantage. And I said, you can do whatever you want. There's no such thing as never lie, but you have to live with the consequences. So taking ownership of that is why I felt like I was in a therapy session watching this movie. Getting to the point where you're able to take responsibility for the decisions you make instead of blaming other people. That's a That's a hard and bitter life lesson. It was really played out well, I think, in this movie, watching him not lose his whole life at once. It was like every decision he had to make pulled another piece away from him. And then he would have to go through this existential crisis over and over and over again uh, to the point where he had nothing left. And had it not been for the hero uh, journalist, Mm -hmm. he would end up with nothing. And uh, that would be- You know what's interesting though, is like Russell Crowe is considered the main actor, lead actor in this film. His face is on the cover. The movie's called The Insider. Like, he is the insider. And I don't think he is. I actually think he's a supporting actor in this. I really feel this is Al Pacino's movie. Like, he is really who's, like, progressing the story along. Yeah. And I think there's, like, a, a at least a 25-minute sequence where Russell Crowe kind of gets forgotten and, like, like, you don't even come back to what he's doing. It's all focused on that newsroom kind of stuff. I would agree. I would call them co-leads. Controversial opinion, but... Well, I'll call them co-leads. I feel like they're... Equal says the most codependent person I know. The you know the narrative works on both sides because you see the weird familiar structures, you see um, the stress, and you also see what happens behind the journalistic world. And I think Christopher Plummer's Rob because uh, that's that's supporting acting coming in playing a crucial narrative. You know, like mm-hmm. however many minutes and lines he has, but this movie doesn't work without him. I mean, he plays a couple of pivotal moments where he's got a. Uh, choose himself even as a side character on what side of the fence he lives on well i mean talking about that choice and people like the choices that people make like 
there's a there's a time where he's like, I have to side yeah. with the people you don't think I should be siding How with. How like, was that? I only have 10 years left in my career, probably. That's amazing. And I don't want to be, and you're only as good as your last story. So how, I don't want to go out just being like, oh, Mike Wallace, he was the guy who lost his job because of cigarettes. Like, he just doesn't want to be that guy. But when like, it gets to the point like, hey, we have to now do this. Um, he actually has a great line. I honestly think this is like top 10 best movie lines for me. It's so good. Where Mike Wallace, as played by Christopher Plummer, goes, fame lasts 15 minutes. Infamy lasts a little longer. I'm like, oh, that's so good. He probably didn't say that in real life, but I don't care. <laughs> it, was, it was so good. That was, you know, just bring up that scene of the corporate shill uh, when Al Pacino's discovered that they are going to all make a fuck ton of money if they just shut the hell mm -hmm. up. I was jarred when uh, Christopher Plummer's like, I think I'm going to side with these guys on this one. I'm like, what? What? Does nobody, <laughs> does nobody care about, you know, uh, it's almost yelling at my Fuck team. you, Mike Wallace. Yeah. And Al Pacino's so great in that. He does that so well. The, the, the switch off where he's like mm -hmm. enraged, impassioned, and then he gets betrayed and he just does that collapse where he's like, like you know I what? Know, like, oh God. Yeah. Fuck, fuck all of you. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know? And I do also like the uh, script writing where he's like, he's like, I'm not going to quit. You're going to have to fire me. I don't know what I'm going to do, <laughs> but he's going to stick in. That's... That's great. That's too. what I like. like I know this, this that scene where he's like editing the tape. It's like, what are you doing? I'm editing. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, no. Like, what are you doing here? It's like, I it's love great. it. Yeah. He plays a prick really well. I actually wrote in my notes literally, was news already doomed? Question mark. Yeah. I think we've answered that. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, I think the other thing that this movie does well is kind of this somewhat subtle thing. But I think also the point where like we have literally spent two hours and like 39 minutes at this point. Getting up this, we finally released the story and we feel like, okay, we've accomplished something. And then Unabomber story hits and it's basically just washed away. Yeah, nobody cares. And no one cares anymore. It's like, geez, like we literally fought and I don't know exactly the time frame, but we're talking years and years of time that has elapsed through this story. Finally getting it to air, finally having Wygan having his moment in the sun and it's just forgotten because the Unabomber bombs some people and it's like, oh, okay, well now news is going to be running over this way. I liked how subtle that was and the buildup. I was wondering mm -hmm. in that crucial sequence where he shows up at that wherever northwestern town and yeah. he confronts the two FBI agents and you're like, what is this scene? Like, well, I actually thought because again, forgetting points of this movie. Early on, they have that like, Unabomber conversation. Yeah, they, like, that's a weird, th little, weird little pepper to put into this like stew, but like whatever, okay. It, it adds to it. And it actually yeah. does come back around and be important again. Yeah, it's great. And I think in reflection at the end of the movie, I was like, oh, wow. So his great reward is that his asthmatic daughter, daughter looks at him and smiles to say that she's seen him. Uh, on the television. Then, yeah. And then you never hear, and like we talked about at the beginning, Big Tobacco doesn't give a shit. They lost money. They lose money in lawsuits now. Uh, but people still buy nicotine. They can, like Canada, put all the ugly, ugly faces and gross pictures of uh, tumors and shit. Nobody cares. I mean, I smoked for mm -hmm. another 15 years after this movie came out. Uh, I was going to bring up actually. And you're fit as a fiddle. Uh, well, that's <laughs> no. Uh, but I, I was going to bring up, you know, 99 was a year where the smoking, like, so they had separated smoking sections. So we were still getting woke, but the smoking section was uh, like six tables that you could smoke at and they're all in the same room. So we mm -hmm. were all smoking, but there was ashtrays on six of the tables. Yeah, like 
I actually do have like vague memories of actually seeing this story on 60 Minutes. I cannot say conclusively that I did. It just feels familiar, the story about this being a big deal that Big Tobacco had been lying. Um, even though it's like we kind of already knew that, but it was like, no, but they we know for sure in documents that they were They're lying. Designed, yeah. Um yeah. I went to university in two thousand and one. That was the last summer. Two thousand one was the last summer that's I think smoking was able to be done inside of bars here in Alberta. So like my first year of university was like six months or something. It was like smoky and you'd come back and it was just like stuck oh, yeah. in your clothing. It's disgusting. And it's like you're crying because of like how much smoke was around the place. And then it's like, actually can't smoke indoors anymore. And it was just like, oh, this is amazing. I don't, I'm not crying every time I go out with friends uh, anymore. That's something that sticks out to me a lot when we watch old movies, you know, and, and people are sitting there like in a small cellar. Yeah. And they're chain smoking cigarettes. And what strikes me a, is, I, yeah, I get the visceral memory of how gross that was. And B, I start thinking, I did that. I lived in an apartment where four of us would just sit there chain smoking cigarettes, smoking other things other than cigarettes. And there's no open windows. We were like on the 17th floor or something of this apartment building. Shit, you are so ghoul. I can guarantee you like the vents were just covered in tar. Oh, it's disgusting. And, um, and that was just normal, you know, never yeah. mind whether we were aware that we were all going to, you know, put ourselves Not at risk that. of- of these but things. like if you go into a house or an apartment of someone who has been like a heavy smoker, even if they oh, stopped it's years ago, yeah. it's like you can still, it's, like ev- it's, still it's everywhere. Uh, anyways, fuck cigarettes is what I'm trying to say. Um, is there any criticisms you have though? I mean, like negative criticisms. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, you disagreed earlier. I, I mean, Russell Crowe, you know what I didn't like about his character or the way he portrayed him is I couldn't tell... There are moments where I feel like he was playing that trope that was big in the 90s of being on the spectrum. You know, this Asperger's mm-hmm. feeling where mm-hmm. um, you're socially awkward, but you're hyper-intelligent, unable to deal with social... So there, there was a lot of tension for me of trying to understand some of his awkwardness around other human beings. And you know, he tries to explain it away with this idea that, uh, oh, you know, I'm difficult in these kind of situations. I just say what I mean. I, but, s- I speak the truth. Yeah, but then yeah. he has so much trouble speaking the truth and he's so emotional when it breaks. So I thought it was kind of weird uh, in the parts where he's very dramatic, like he's he's good in it, but I I found him to be the weakest comparatively. I don't I mean mm. he's not a bad he's not bad in it compared to some of the garbage we've put ourselves through this year. I mean he's a good actor. Um yeah. but I did feel like he's he dragged he, he dragged a little bit. Yeah, I I didn't have, I didn't have any issues with that that didn't really even cross my mind just quickly before i forget it i just want to mention how much i loved the little deposition scene and that one lawyer just losing oh, it on the other yeah. one's like you can't object this isn't a courtroom like that sit smirk down. off your face oh that was awesome yeah. anyways uh all i really only my major criticism of this movie is i do think it drags a little bit only in like the final 25 30 minutes i think you could have cut out some some things here and there the in fat. the final bit but like Honestly, for the first two hours, I was in it. Like, I was super into this movie, and it, like, screamed by. So, um, yeah. just some att- care and attention there at the, at the vast, last little bit is the only, like, super minor criticism I have of this movie. Yeah, I love the camera. Uh, but I liked it. I liked it a lot. We're done here. Machinist told us we have to wrap up here, Nen. All right. Uh, so, let's answer that question that we often ask. Is this still culturally relevant? I think thematically it is. I think mm-hmm. visually it's shot really well, but you know, those anachronistic things like the flip phones and the things that I think it would be hard. And then the uh, technology certainly dates this movie. for yeah. sure. Yeah. And I think too, like 
it's so focused on big tobacco that even though they still are bleeding the world, uh, they are not an issue right now. Nobody cares about cigarettes. Mm -hmm. We care about it in a general public health sense, but um, they are no, no longer- There's so many more huge things yeah, that we're Yeah, they're no longer with, yeah. the face of the devil. If you recast this movie and made it about Google and Facebook, oh, they did make the social network. But, you know, you could have the similar themes presented in a more modern way. So I don't know if, I don't know if it holds up per se, but as a movie nerd, I loved watching this movie. I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was awesome. I'm kind of exactly there with you. So let's move on to rating this. Of course, we're making an entire list over on our Letterboxd page. You can see the entire list at letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And KDVSTM is also our social media handles. So if you want to check us out on Instagram or on Twitter, we're having some cool conversations over there recently. So go check us out on that. Uh, Dave, out of five, what would you give this movie? Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I think, I think I'm going to lowball a bit and go with a four. I feel like, I, yeah, I was thinking about a four and a half, but, um, I, yeah, I don't know. There's something too that holds it back. And I, I think I just didn't identify with Russell Crowe, uh, his portrayal and uh, the weak wife is actually really irritating to me. And, sure. um, and, and it's a bit dated. So I, I think I'm going to be a little cynical and go with a four today well i am gonna go and give it a 4.5 then uh, like i said it's just such a minor thing but overall i think this movie is great i think more people should watch it and it should be in the cultural conversation a little bit more than than what it is we'll we'll revisit in six months to see if we remember what this movie is about <laughs> tell me the plot description write it down you fucked you um okay uh that means then, Dave, that it averages out to 4.25, which will be uh, rated down to a 4 because uh, you don't round up. That means it is tied with three other films. In order, from top to bottom, it is tied with Eyes Wide Shut, All About My Mother, and Ghost Dog. How would you put it in to those ratings? I would put above all three. Hmm. Yeah. What about you? Oh, it's tough. Um, I personally think that Eyes Wide Shut is a better movie. Uh, that's the only quibble I have. I would have put it on top of the other two for sure. But right. I don't know. I, it's probably because it's the weirdness and it doesn't rely so much on like technology and stuff like that. That I just find Eyes Wide Shut to be just a fascinating movie that I like yeah, way okay. more than I thought it was going to. I'm okay with that. I, I think uh, Eyes Wide Shut definitely has a more... It's it's such a weird movie. <laughs> <laughs> it may hold up longer just for it being so eccentric. So entering the list at our number eight position is The Insider. I guess we should find out what we are reviewing here next week, Dave. I have a pretty good suspicion since how we have talked about the four Best Picture nominees from mm. 1999. Mm. But let's find out. Push this button. Boop, 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 boop. Yes, no, no surprise here. We are talking about American Beauty next mm. week. What do you remember about American Beauty besides uh, rose petals? Yeah, rose petals, naked teenage girl, plastic bag. And I actually remember <laughs> not liking it that much. Oh, to be interesting. With you. I, yeah. I'm actually a little bit worried in that I remember really liking it, but I have no idea if that movie holds mm. up anymore and of course the whole kevin spacey thing is going to tarnish it a little bit for me this is well. going to be a good uh, episode maybe unless we end up just meeting in the middle and we're both like oh, yeah we agree and it's whatever like but uh, what a 90s movie <laughs> i do remember thinking it was uh 
pretentious and and sort of over overblown. But uh, yeah. who knows? I don't know. I haven't watched it. Sometimes I'm just overcome with the beauty of a plastic bag <laughs> waving in the wind. Can you save that for next week? Jesus, you just blew your <laughs> load, man. <laughs> uh, so what was Objection. this? Uh, you can't object. Objection. This this is the courtroom. <laughs> It's not a good look.